even at the cost of some small mishaps. Like hitting yourself on the leg with a hammer? Welcome to Charlotte Mason Says. I'm John Chindell, here with my wife, Crystal. Join us as we read and discuss the home education series. So this week, we are talking about the habit of perfect execution. We are finishing out part four, which has been going through the habits of the mind and the moral habits. And we'll get to the moral habits today. But my exciting news is that for all of part five, we've got 13 episodes in part five. We have a guest for every single part. Or at least we are planning on having 13 episodes Depending on how it goes, it might grow. And guests are scheduled for every single one. <laughs> if you're throwing out caveats, I'll throw out caveats. Yes. You're <laughs> scheduled for every single one. We'll, we'll see. We'll see if it ends up being 13 or more. Yep. But it'll be good. It, we've, we've already had a couple of conversations with a couple of folks and they've been, they've been fun conversations. I'm excited to edit them and listen to them again. I'm excited to put them out there for y'all to hear. Um, I have learned stuff yeah. from, from our guests. Oh, it's been great. I'm I'm very excited. I'm very excited to continue talking to people about these things. Yep. Yeah. But today I get to only talk with you. That's you a know. I'm so sorry. You, you won't hear only us until at least July. Yeah, this will be the last one, and then it'll be us and smart people. Yes. Which means the show might get better. <laughs> it might be an improvement. <laughs> And then it'll be back to just us, and I guess that'll be that. Yep. And we need to start thinking about what our next book is going to be. We do need to think about that, and we haven't really done anything on it yet. We've done one and two. We got three, four, five, and six left. Well, I feel like three would be the logical next choice. Uh, And I know someone was lobbying for that. I don't remember who. Three is school education, which looks at um, the higher levels, kind of above age nine. Number four is a book called Ourselves, and it's broken down into two books, and it is actually an assigned reading in what it was assigned reading in in Charlotte Mason schools for children to read themselves. I was going to say, because that one that one is about children for children, Mm -hmm. about being a person, as far as I know. And then five is Formation of Character, and I'm pretty sure those are, again, PNEU articles, but I could be wrong about that. And then six is Towards a Philosophy of Education and her kind of treatise work, which is not a summary of all the books, so you cannot just read it as a standalone. But it was her last written book. It was actually published post posthumously. And, yeah, she kind of incorporated everything and had the, the advantage of later years so she could look over all she had written and thought about and talked about and well, and she had had the chance to test out her theories and her method over many years at that point. Yeah. And so she'd had a chance to refine things and, and like you said, take another look at things. I know one of the things you've talked about a couple times is that the principles at the front of the book change from the other volumes to volume six mm-hmm. and that they're reordered. Some of them are condensed. Narration is added. Yeah. Cool. But we're still on part four. Of home education, halfway through the book about. So the habit 
of perfect execution. Throw perfect into all you do. Throw perfection into all you do. Throw perfection into all you do. I will make you read it perfectly. Wow, I'm really perfectly. good at <laughs> I'm really good at being perfectly reading. Okay. Well, this is a council <laughs> upon which a family may be brought up with great advantage. We English as a nation think too much of persons and too little of things. Work execution. Self-esteem. Yeah. She says, our children are allowed to take their figures or their letters, their stitches, their dolls, clothes, their small carpentry, anyhow, with the notion that they will do better by and by. Other nations, the Germans and the French, for instance, look at the question philosophically and know that if the children get the habit of turning out imperfect work, then men and women will undoubtedly keep that habit up. Which is an interesting thought, and I think it's one that rings true. It's, it's again, it's a habit. What habit are you in? Yeah. Back to everything we've been talking about. If you are in a habit of making bad uh, slipshod work, then you will continue with your slipshod work. Yeah. And it takes a lot of, I guess, parental involvement at the beginning because they don't know how to do it and they're going to make mistakes. Mm -hmm. But if they're doing, say, a sampler or making dolls clothes, it that's something that you want to be precise in. Right. It's interesting to talk about this. And we've we've just given Ian a bunch of wood and nails and a saw and kind of just turned him loose <laughs> to see what he does. We have. It's been fun. And he's loving it. But I don't think I should require perfect execution from him in this where he is just using and working and imagining and pulling different powers of, to play. But if we got proper wood and a plan to build a specific thing, that's where the perfect execution and the habit of doing perfect work would come in. Well, I think it's the difference between play and work. Because with play, you don't have to be perfect. You're just playing. Mm -hmm. But if you're talking work, then you do want to be perfect. Mm-hmm. Well, she continues here. She says, I remember being delighted in the work of a class of about 40 children of six and seven in an elementary school at Heidelberg. They were doing a writing lesson accompanied by a good deal of oral teaching from a master who wrote each word on the blackboard. By and by the slates were shown, and I did not observe one faulty or irregular letter on the whole 40 slates, which is impressive. But I, you kind of think of this as what are, what are they as a country turning out? And this is still before the First World War. It is. And Germany paid, played a large role in that. They did. They did. Well, and we – she talks about children needing to be creative and, and needing to – I don't know. I, I don't really know how to, how to put my finger on that because I, I don't necessarily think that the German method of education was the epitome. But at the same time, the idea of – perfect execution makes sense. Mm -hmm. So then moving on, she says a child should execute perfectly. She says no work should be given to a child that, that he cannot execute perfectly. And then perfection should be required of him as a matter of course. Which I see as a, another argument for delayed academics. I would agree with that. Because if you're trying to teach a child to write when they physically do not have the hand strength to do it properly. Right. 
then you're training them to imperfect work. Well, and you're, you're teaching, you can't teach them how to hold a pencil properly. So she goes on to keep talking about strokes and writing. And, and this is something I've, I've had pointed out to me. She's not even talking about writing perfect letters. She's talking about writing perfect strokes, you know, part of a letter. Right. Making it be, again, pulling your attention, making it be the six perfect strokes at regular distances, at regular slopes. Not just a whole line of it, just, you know, all of these things. Just just do it. Again, busy work that you take forever to do, and it occupies the child. But work at getting it right. And when he knows that they're faulty, you point out that fault and then he has to keep working at it until his task is done. And then once he finds it, once he does it, celebrate and let everything he does be well done. That reminds me of Chinese martial arts movies I've watched, be it, gosh, the Ip Man is one of them with uh, Donnie, Donnie Yen, I think his name is. Or uh, Legend of the Drunken Master with Jackie Chan, where they show some of those elements of learning Chinese calligraphy. And I think in Drunken Master, he starts out being a carefree whatever person who's just kind of slapping lines across a page. And his teachers don't like it. Hmm. And he doesn't understand it. And by the end of the movie, he's figured it out. Hmm. And it, it's talking about the the six strokes and how they need to be perfect each one reminds me of that chinese calligraphy where where yeah you're writing symbols and you're you're putting language on paper but it's so much more than that well and you can see that in looking at old handwriting yeah an old well-written letter yeah or someone who's practiced their calligraphy and can free write really really well mm-hmm. and their handwriting is beautiful well, and then I think she moves into a little bit of doing this during play. An unsteady house of cards is a thing to be ashamed of. I don't think they would build a house of cards in school. No, probably not. Closely connected with this habit of perfect work is that of finishing whatever is taken in hand. The child should rarely be allowed to set his hand to a new undertaking until the last is finished. So I, I don't. I don't know with with this one. I feel like there's a lot of value in perfectly executing something. There's also a lot of value in just just doing something. Mm-hmm. I feel like for me personally, the fear of imperfect execution has stopped me from doing a lot of things. Or if I can't do it perfectly, why am I trying to do it? Yeah. As- especially... As I've gotten older and as something that I have never done, I'm not quite as willing to pick it up. I, to be honest, watercoloring and brush drawing, and that's a big part of what is advocated in Charlotte Mason world. And I'm scared of it. I've done a few things. I have the supplies, but I don't know what I'm doing, and I don't want to. I don't want to waste paper. I don't want to waste the the what is it called ink the paints that i don't don't know don't ask (laughs) me i don't want to waste the paints i don't i don't want to just mess up in front of the kids and teach the kids wrong so i just i don't just don't i don't know that's 
that that's one example of where the fear of not doing something perfect has crippled me in my life. So I wonder if it's not one there, of those. There's my soul. Right. And just <laughs> bear it there. I wonder if it's not one of those pick your moments type of things where you don't know what you're doing with watercolors. And so you have to start somewhere. So mm-hmm. it's not going to be, it's, you're not going to execute perfectly, but it makes me wonder if perfect execution also means perfect effort. I don't know. Because there's something to be said for loving doing something, even if you're not good at it Mm -hmm. and doing it because you love it. There's a zillion people that play golf. (laughs) That's true. I used to. I played in high school. Right? I sucked. I was horrible. (laughs) There was one, the one tournament I remember, it was in the rain. And I could not get the ball off the ground to save my life. It just, it was, and I just had to keep playing because I was in the tournament and. Sounds terrible. It was so bad. Uh, So yeah, sports is one of those that it's good for you. It's good for you to get out and do something with your body to move it. It doesn't matter how good at the sport you are. You're doing something good. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like art would be another. It doesn't matter if you're a perfect artist. There are only but so many artists who are perfect mm-hmm. and even they're not. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I, I'm not, I'm not quite sure where I fall on this. I, I think there's, there are definitely, there are instances where I like the idea of, of attaining perfection. Let me, let me ask this question then. Would you consider this to be one of the main habits to work on? Uh, she's bringing it up in this section on habits as a specific habit that parents may not look to very often. Is this a habit that you would spend your time and energy training with your children in? Our children in? Only my children, not yours. Um, I think... I'm glad we've established that. <laughs> I will go on vacation now. <laughs> with all the children. No. Um, I think. I think there... Like I was saying, I think there are avenues where it makes sense to have perfect execution. But there are also instances where where you're looking for perfect effort. Uh, she, all right, hold on. A thought just occurred to me. He's flipping back in his book. It's a riveting exhibition. Did you see that video of the guy who, the sportscaster who is out of a job right now? Who's narrating his dogs eating? Oh gosh, <laughs> it was awesome. And he said, "Stay tuned tomorrow for the sleep on the couch marathon." <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> okay, she talked about rewards for a classroom and how those rewards need to be given for not, not oh knowledge. for the for the effort, not the uh, one forty four. Thank you. Middle of the page. If a system of marks be used as a stimulus to attention and effort, the good marks should be given for conduct rather than for cleverness. That is, they should be within everybody's reach. Right. So so that makes me think that if if we can't give awards based on that which was achieved, then are we trying to ingrain our children in the habit of perfect achievement or perfect effort? towards perfect execution and achievement. And I feel like it's splitting hairs. 
but some some people don't have the the inborn talent to to do a certain thing to perfection. Okay. You know, there's there's only so many professional painters, musicians, sports players because there's an inborn talent. I know that there are engineers who are better than me. There are managers that are better than me. Part of it is because they're more talented at that than I am. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that I shouldn't give my effort perfectly toward in, in everything that I do. So I don't know if I necessarily agree with her in that your execution needs to be perfect. I think that that the goal needs to be towards the effort being perfect. So therefore the execution will be as good as the child can do. Okay. And I, so I'm thinking back to when, when you were teaching handwriting to Ian and one of the things you did is he would, he would have a row of letters and you would have him pick out which letters were the best. And you would be, you would be comparing his letters to his letters. Mm. It's not that you would be comparing his letters to someone else's or to a whole classrooms. It's all right. Which time did you execute the best? Mm -hmm. And if this is the best that you can do, then that's the best that you can do. And it it reminds me, I had a, I had a friend in, in high school who said that he came home one day with a, with a bad grade on a, on a test. He was an A student. Everything Mm -hmm. was an A and he got a, he got either a C or a D on this test and came home and showed it to his dad. And his dad was like, well, if that's the best that you can do, then it's good enough for me. <laughs> and this guy was like, oh, it killed me mm-hmm. because that it wasn't the best that I could do. Mm-hmm. Because if I had studied for the test even a little bit, I would have aced it. But I didn't care. So I didn't give my best. And I had to tell my dad that. And I had to say, dad, that wasn't my best. And dad said that I'm disappointed. Mm-hmm. Because it wasn't about the grade. It wasn't about the the perfect execution. It was about the perfect effort. Hmm. So I feel like I've talked in a circle now, but I I now think I feel more comfortable with this, at least how I reasoned it. Well, now that we've beat less than two pages to a Gosh, that's like a page and a half. Wow. Okay. Perfect. Perfect execution. Mm Hmm. And now we move on to moral habits. Right. She talks about two specific moral habits, obedience and truthfulness. And she says, you know, it's it's disappointing that in order to cover the ground at all, we must reach these moral habits, which the mother owes it to her children to cultivate in them in a slight and inadequate way. But the point to be borne in mind is that all that has been said already about the cultivation of habit applies with the greatest possible force to each of these habits. So she's like, I want to talk so much more about this, (laughs) but I will constrain myself. But just remember everything, everything about habits, it applies. It's still important. First and infinitely the most important is the habit of obedience. Indeed, obedience is the whole duty of the child. And for this reason, every other duty of the child is fulfilled as a matter of obedience to his parents. Not only so, obedience is the whole duty of man. Obedience to conscience, to law, and to divine direction. So it's 
not only important to the child, but it is important to the man. Well, it's important to the child because it's important to the man. Mm-hmm. So I will say I had a hard time in this section finding things to not highlight. <laughs> we will try not to read the entire chapter to you guys. Right. So forgive me if we or if I read large chunks of, of this, because I, I think I think there's a lot of good stuff in in these two sections. Well, the first example she gives is the temptations of Christ in the wilderness. There were three temptations. The first one was that he turned stones into bread to full to satisfy his hunger. The second one is that he throw himself off of a high cliff and off of, I think it was off of the temple and the angels will catch him. And then the third one was to bow down to Satan and Satan will give him all the riches of the world. Yeah. So in a quick Google search, it was uh, temptations of hedonism, egoism, and materialism. And, and just like in the garden, the saint, Satan, the serpent, was not saying you should do something directly in disobedience to what God says. He's he's giving those little, did God really say, is that really? Yeah. So it, it's it's a state, this the state of willfulness that's directly opposed to obedience. And out of which springs up foolishness. Because the child doesn't know to discern the right from the wrong at this point. Which, again, goes back to why we, as parents, are there to support them as they're growing and maturing into a knowledge of good and evil. Right. Well, and that's that's directly where she goes. She says, now, if the parent realizes that obedience is no mere accidental duty, he'll see that he has no right to forego the obedience of his child. And that every act of disobedience in the child is a direct condemnation of the parent. Mm-hmm. And you'll also see that the motive to the child's obedience is not the arbitrary one of do this because I say so, but the motive, she says, will be the apostolic injunction, children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. Mm-hmm. And that's something I remember her talking about in parents and children is that we can appeal to the the spirit and appeal to the natural order of things and we can appeal to a higher power again vested with authority yeah i i can tell someone do this and they will do it because i have been vested with that authority yeah and it's the the authority of the position as opposed to necessarily the authority of the person yeah well and and i mean that gets into again if you've been given the authority to do a thing then it is not your authority to do it incorrectly. Mm-hmm. So as a parent ordering the obedience of a child, you're not going to, you you should not, it would be wrong of you to require the obedience of a child in doing something that is wrong. Mm-hmm. So the child in being obedient to the parent does what is right because the parent is requiring the child to do what is right. Mm-hmm. Well, in the next section, she goes on to say that the child also needs that desire because if all they're obeying is do this because I said to, you're obeying the willfulness of that authority figure and you're yeah. being bullied into the submission to the will of another because they just want you to do it. Not because that is the right thing to do. 
Yeah. So we're, we're, we're trying to train the habit of obedience because it's right. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's something we talk about with our children a lot is doing what's right. And the difference between what is right and what is wrong. Mm-hmm. Again, the the desire to obey in spite of temptations to disobedience. Yeah. And then got to form that habit, strengthen that will. Because if you are tempted, it is not a sign of a, a strong-willed person to fall into temptation. It's a sign of a weak will. And she talks about that as well, where you're coming alongside the child and saying, let me help you strengthen your will. Right. Here, let's work on this. Let's work on this with you. Yeah. By, by the very nature of who you are, you are not a strong person because mm-hmm. you're a child. And expecting obedience. The, the mother has no more sacred duty. Again, these are strong words. Yeah, they are. It's a sacred duty than that of training her infant to instant obedience. She references that Wordsworth poem again, trailing clouds of glory from God who is his home. Again, that high status of child. Yeah. The personhood of child. The principle of obedience is within him, waiting to be called into exercise. The mother often enough loses her hold over her children because they detect in the tone of her voice that she does not expect them to obey her behests. She does not think enough of her position, has not enough, has not sufficient confidence in her own authority. And so, again, that's working on yourself. Yeah. So many of these things flow from you as the parent, having confidence in your authority, having confidence that they will obey and expecting it. Yeah. She says it's enough to say do this in a quiet, authoritative tone and to expect it to be done. It's like it's so hard you know, saying to the child, follow me when they're screaming and crying at the side of the road because they don't want to walk anymore and turning around and walking away <laughs> and not looking back. Yeah. It's so hard. Yeah. Because all you want to do is scoop up the poor crying little child. No, you want to look back and make sure they're following you. Well, that too. Well, I want to. No, I'm, I'm not talking about if they're hurt. Well, no. If they're hurt, I'll pick them up. It's when they're throwing a tantrum. I'm like, okay, no, we're going. And you need to come too. So when I turn around, I must believe that I have been invested with enough authority that they will follow me. And I cannot look back because if I look back, where is it? What did she say? I lose my hold over the children because they, they detect... By my looking back, that I do not expect them to obey. Because you, by looking back, you're expecting to have to tell them again. Exactly. It's it's hard. I've only had to do it a few times, and it's worked. But it's hard. <laughs> you know, they eventually come running after you. Yeah, she says the mother's great stronghold is the habit of obedience. If she begin by requiring that her children always obey her, why, they will always do so as a matter of course. But let them once get the thin edge of the wedge in, let them discover that they can do otherwise than obey, and a woeful struggle begins, which commonly ends in the children doing that which is right 
in their own eyes. Which is the condemnation given to the people of Israel over and over and over again in the book of Judges. Yep. And they did what was right in their own eyes. And then they got conquered. Because what was right in their own eyes was not what was right. Yeah. And again, let them once get the thin edge of the wedge. Once get a teeny tiny sliver. It's so hard. Well, that's what we've been talking about for the last couple chapters, though, is is these habits. They have to be, it has to be every time. Mm -hmm. It can't be, sometimes you exercise the habit, but sometimes you don't. Which is why I think you and I were both so, so frustrated with the habit of perfect execution. I can't perfectly execute something every single time, but I can perfectly give effort every single time towards perfect execution. And the same thing is true here is we, we have to expect perfect obedience every single time. Mm -hmm. She gives an example of children who do not want to go upstairs when they're told to. Oh, we'll stay here and be nice and quiet. Oh, fine. You'll be nice and quiet, which they're not. <laughs> they won't. They're never quiet. But that's not the worst part. They did what they wanted to do. And they will not do, they will not put their necks under the yoke again without a struggle. That sounds familiar. So let it slip and life gets harder. The thing that matters is that the child should be daily confirming the habit of obedience by the unbroken repetition of acts of obedience. And kids are amazing at finding ways of not obeying. Yeah, her example here of uh, slovenly picking up of bricks. Oh, that happened tonight. And last night. Oh, yes. And the night before that. <laughs> Slow and reluctant fingers. Uh-huh. Well, she says, to avoid these displays of willfulness, the mother will insist from the first on an obedience which is prompt, cheerful, and lasting save for lapses of memory on the child's part. One thing that you brought up earlier this evening was also taking into consideration the state of the child. The, the time of day. The time of day. The fact that we were asking it to be done after dinner, before bedtime, when everyone's exhausted. Yeah. And children, when they're exhausted, get crazy and can't control anything. Their emotions, their tone of voice, their loudness, yep. the way that they're working. It's just, it's its gone for the day. And so expecting this and, and planning your day in such a way that you can expect prompt and, what was it, prompt, cheerful, and lasting obedience is a boon to everyone involved. Yeah. Well, they're definitely better, our, our children at least, are definitely better at obeying early in the day than they are later in the day. Mm -hmm. Because by later in the day, like you said, they're tired. And, and they're, they're physically, emotionally, and mentally tired. And that's a conversation we had earlier today about why, why the evenings are, are rough. Mm -hmm. And then when they're old enough, tell them why you're asking and why it's a good thing and a noble thing to be able to make yourself do in a minute, brightly, the very thing you would rather not do. And again, to secure this habit of obedience, the mother must exercise great self-restraint. She must never give a command which she does not intend to see carried out to the full. 
and she must not lay upon her children burdens, grievous to be born, of command heaped upon command. I'm guilty of this. I think many mothers are guilty of this. Rapid firing things to do. As you're going through the house, you see something, you tell the child to do it, and you just move on. You know, hey, you pick up this jacket, you pick up the shoes, you pick up the books. Hey, this jacket's still on the floor. But that's not an appropriate way of giving commands that will engineer obedience in children. Well, and that's one thing that I've I've figured out with our children. When the house is a wreck and we're going through and picking up, it's easier on everybody if I'm there to be the taskmaster to say, okay, you pick up that thing. And then the child goes and picks up that thing and puts it away. And I look to the next child, you pick up that group of things. It's all the same thing. You pick up all of the train tracks that are right there and put them away. And when they finish that task, they move on to the next one. And typically, it works really well. And that's when you're not heaping command upon command. Yeah, you're giving one at a time. You're you're issuing commands as they are appropriate for a child. And I'll say this, even on a professional level, uh, dealing with adults, if you try and give someone a mental uh, list of things to do, if you get over two items, the rest of the items are gone. That's why when I was working my first job, I would be berated if I ever showed up to a meeting without something to write on because it was, all right, I'm going to give you a list of things to do. And if you try and remember it, you'll remember one of them, maybe two. Hmm. But if you write them down, I can give you a list of 20 things and then you'll be able to work your way down that list. Well, as children, we're not. They can't get some paper and write them down. No, because <laughs> one, they can't write and two, they can't read and three, they can't do that. That's not a, that's not a thing. So it has to be one at a time. It can't be pick up all of the stuff in this room. It's pick up that thing. Okay. Now pick up that group of things. And I feel like that should translate into other areas of life as well. Although I can't think of how off the top of my head. And because you follow this law, because you are obedient, you may be trusted with a good deal of liberty. They receive a few directions that they know they must not disobey, and then they learn how to direct their own actions without being pestered by the perpetual fire of, do this, don't do that. Uh, one one thing that I want to point attention to is here is she says uh, they're left to learn how to direct their own actions, even at the cost of some small mishaps. Like hitting yourself on the leg with a hammer? Or cutting yourself with your whittling knife. Oh, yeah. Uh... I don't know how he managed this one, but he has a hole in his pants at the knee, and he told me it was from the saw. <laughs> I don't know how he did that. Well, I know my little brother once tried to chainsaw his leg off, so, so maybe that's portents of that. I hope not. The, the only thing that saved him were the Carhartts he was wearing. So yay, Carhartt. It was an accident. And the thing slipped, and, and it definitely dug into his leg. It was gross. Okay, so this next section is the habit of truthfulness. And she has an entire chapter in Parents and Children, chapter 19, called What is Truth? And that was episode 43. Episode 43, if you want to go and listen to that one as well. Because here she talks about three causes of lying. And in Parents and Children, she goes to six classifications of lies. So she expounds on it a lot more. Well, she spends an entire 
10 pages, nine pages on it. Mm-hmm. Well, and she ends this section with, I think, the, the common thread between the two. She says, it is more important to cultivate the habit of truth than to deal with the accident of lying. Yeah. And I, and, and that's where she's going in this section here. She says, uh, the vices of lying arise from three causes, carelessness in ascertaining the truth, carelessness in stating the truth, and a deliberate intention to deceive. And the third cause of lying is the one that is typically dealt with by parents. This is what she means by only one kind visited on children. Right. But it's the other two that are also important. Mm -hmm. Where he says, I've seen lots of spotted dogs when it's only two. There's two in the neighborhood. All the boys are collecting crests, but he knows three. And it's these departures from the strict veracity on the matters of such slight importance that the mother's apt to let them pass as child's chatter. But indeed, every such lapse is damaging to the child's sense of truth, a blade which easily loses its keenness of edge. And again, just like we talked about with execution, perfect execution, the eye is injured and his moral sense is vitiated if he sees and continues to see imperfect things in front of him. Yeah. And if you continually do this, it damages your sense of truth. Yeah. Yeah. She says uh, two forms of prevarication. Did you look up the, oh, the. Uh, the annotated that. version. Look at it. that. A lie. <laughs> well, that was, that was anticlimactic. Although now I know a big word. Two forms of a lie will require great vigilance on the mother's part, that of exaggeration and that of clothing a story with ludicrous embellishments. She says, however funny a circumstance may be as described by the child, the ruthless mother must strip the tale of everything over and above the naked truth. For indeed, a reputation for fastidiousness is dearly purchased by the loss of that dignity of character in either a child or a man, which accompanies the habit of strict veracity. Mm-hmm. And she says it's possible, happily, to be humorous without any sacrifice of truth. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I've started, you know, when the kids say, oh, there's millions of these. Say, is, there, is there really? Just kind of asking, is that is that actually true? Yeah. Is it really that way? Like, ah, oh, maybe just four or five. It was Naomi. She said, I've listened to this millions of times. It's like, really? No, I think I've listened to it twice. Okay. <laughs> so. so, yeah, it's the calling calling attention to that. Mm-hmm. Well, so she, she then talks about reverence. She moves on to other moral habits in this yeah, truthfulness part. I guess it's it's truthfulness, et cetera, here. Like, she, she kind of touches on truthfulness. All right, y'all got it? Good. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna run down the list of other moral habits. So the next, the next habit she talks about here is reverence. She says, as for reverence, consideration for others, respect for persons and property, I can only urge the importance of a sed, sed, sedulous, wow. Showing dedication or diligence. There you go. Uh, cultivation of these moral qualities, the distinguishing marks of a refined nature until they become the daily habits of the child's life. Because a self-assertive, aggressive, self-seeking temper is but too characteristic of the times we live in. I'm sure there are 
qualities that we could say that of our times as well. I was going to say, when I read that, I went, oh, that sounds familiar. Self-assertive, aggressive, self-seeking. I'm, I've been watching this, the show Suits on, I think it's USA. It's on Amazon Prime right now. And that list of characteristics is what that show is all about. It's about New York lawyers who hmm. are who are some of the most powerful and rich men in New York, at least according to the show. And that's that's what they are, self-assertive, aggressive, self-seeking. Well, and she doesn't want to, to harp on these, but just these things are important. Yeah. And, and the anecdote to those three ill characteristics are reverence, consideration for others, respect for persons and property. Yeah. And then she moves on to talk about temper a little bit and the habit of a sweet temper. Especially in that time, temper was regarded as constitutional. You're born with it, and you cannot do anything about it. And she talks a lot about uh, this in Parents and Children in her discussion on heredity. She does. And there's no specific episode because she, it's woven throughout she, the whole book. She talks about it throughout the entire book, and I'm not even going to look. Yeah, the, there are some specific chapters where she talks about it more than others, but but that's a that's a common theme through this book is heredity. And she counters with it's a tendency. You you do inherit a tendency to these things, but you don't have to you don't have to stick with that. And you as a parent can help the child specifically with ones that you that that are hard for you because you you already know about it. You've already been through there and you don't want that for your children. So you can help them to not have this form in the child. Yeah, she says, to to add her words here, she says, to, it rests with parents to correct the original twist, all the more so if it is from them the child gets it, and to send the child into the world blessed with an even happy temper, inclined to make the best of things, to look at the bright side, to impute the best and kindest motives to others, and to make no extravagant claims on his own account, fertile source of ugly tempers. And this because the child is born with no more than certain tendencies, like you said. Mm-hmm. So the parents have to correct the tendency by a new habit of temper. She says it's by force of habit that a tendency becomes a temper, and it rests with the mother to hinder the formation of ill tempers to force that of good tempers. Let her change the child's thoughts. And again, this is this is something that's huge in pretty much any habit-forming discussion that you have today where our thoughts create our feelings and our feelings create our emotions and our emotions are what drive our actions and so that that cycle is where you need to break it in the cycle of your thoughts to your feelings to your actions so if you want to change your action you have to change your thought so in order to change your thought you need to be aware of what those thoughts are. Yeah, that makes sense. And in this case, the mother needs to be aware of the thoughts of the child, which when they're really young, it's easy to see because their face is an open book and every thought that's going through there is showing up physically on their face. Yeah. And so that's where she can say, we're going to change that thought just even before it's come into being. Then you take action, you send them outside. Or you 
give them, send them to fetch or carry. You give them a job. Jobs are amazing for kids. <laughs> you tell them or so, show them something that's interest in a way that they don't even know that they're being taken away from this thought. That they don't know. They don't understand that they were about to become angry, that they were about to become ill-tempered, that instead of falling into that track, falling into a fit of sullenness, it's just not there. Yeah. The, the mother is careful to lay down a highway for the free course of all sweet and genial thoughts and feelings. So it's, again, just helping them, in specifically in the, the tendencies of temper, but helping them to train their own habits. Yeah. And it's, and it's important for them. It's important for children. She concludes with the paragraph I read towards the beginning of part four, where she's offering suggestions, and not for a course of intellectual and moral training, but for the formation of certain habits, which should be, as it were, the outworkings of character. And again, limited time, don't have enough time to touch on everything. So I was selective and I chose the things that appear to me to not have their full weight with educated parents rather than those which every thoughtful person recognizes the force. Kind of so, makes me wonder what what those other ones full, were. Yeah, what her full list of habits was. What what habits that she thought parents were good at instilling in their children so we don't even have to talk about them. Well, she didn't talk about the habit of brushing her hair. Yeah, but I'm not good at that. See? Are you not an educated parent? A thoughtful and educated Clearly not, because I don't brush my I don't. Yeah, whatever. Oh, my gosh. John well, chops it all off so he doesn't have to. That's literally the reason I cut it off is so I don't have to deal with it. Because otherwise it's just a pain. I've had long hair before, and it's a pain. So if you've made it this far, thanks for listening and hanging out with us. Uh, we've successfully now made it through habits. And we've talked about... All kinds of habits. We don't need to recap what we've talked about. <laughs> so, yeah, no, you're right. So, yeah, to uh, to everyone who's still listening, thank you. Uh, thank you for spending your time with us and, and listening and, and all of that. If you if you have any thoughts or or um, if you think that that our our ruminations on these things are are wrong, or you think that that Charlotte Mason espouses different ideas elsewhere in her books that I, frankly, I've just not made it to yet. Please let me know. I, I would love to hear from you. And like we've said before, the reason Crystal and I are doing this is so that we can learn more about what Charlotte Mason thought about education. Mm-hmm. And we're working through book by book and chapter by chapter. So if you have insight from other books, I'd love to hear it. So if you do want to get a hold of us, you can email us at charlottemasonsays at gmail.com. You can hit us up on Twitter, which I think is at CM says. You can go to Instagram at Charlotte Mason says, or on Facebook. What's our group? Is it just Charlotte Mason says? Yeah. So yeah, and, and you know, hit us if if you have thoughts. If you want to tell us that we're that we're wrong, right, or anything else, uh, feel free to to drop us a line. It'd be be great to hear from people. Yeah, and we'll get into the meat of. How lessons as instruments of education next week. There you go. I'm very excited. All right. We'll see you all then. Mm-hmm.
Thank you for listening. Join the conversation with us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter.